winning the war inside. That's what we're going to talk about, part two. There's a classic book that was published in 1886. And you know what people say the definition of a classic book is, right? It's a book that everyone's heard of, but nobody's read. (laughs) Uh, A classic book published in 1886, written by Robert Louis Stevenson, a Scottish author. Here's what it's called, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Have you heard of it? Yeah, of course, but probably very few of us have actually read it. <laughs> and it's a short little book, and it's very fascinating. In fact, I read it this past week in preparation, and uh, you can read it in just, a, a, uh, just pretty quick. It's, the key character in the book is Dr. Jekyll. And from a young age, you find out that Dr. Jekyll is frustrated by a feeling that he has inside of him. It's a feeling that he's always this side of him that always wants to do the the wrong thing. It always wants to do bad. And he knows he's supposed to do right, but it's this feeling that he he wants to do bad. And so, and, and that bad side is always hindering his good side. And so... As he grows up and he becomes a doctor, he becomes a chemist, and he decides that he's going to invent a potion, and he does. He invents this potion that can separate the two parts of himself. And the good one now is Dr. Jekyll, and Dr. Jekyll comes out by day, and the bad one is Mr. Hyde, and he comes out by night. The word Hyde actually comes from the word hidden or hideous. And he is a hideous creature, we find out. And since these two parts of himself are separate, now they can live without hindering the other. The problem is that he finds out, Dr. Jekyll finds out that without any restraint, Mr. Hyde, his bad side, becomes ten times worse than he ever thought. He said his every act and thought centered on self. He was angry, cruel, and you find out in the book he even becomes a murderer. Things spiral out of control in his life because of Mr. Hyde. Robert Stevenson's words through Dr. Jekyll are that this. He said, man is truly not one but two. He says, it's not that I was a hypocrite, it's that both sides were very sincere, yes. He said he called himself, and (laughs) he said, I'm an incongruous compound. I'm an incongruous compound. See, what many don't know actually about the author of this book is that he was a religious man. In fact, he probably was a believer. And many think, actually, that it was Romans chapter 7 that was the inspiration for this book and his story. When you read Romans chapter 7, you can't help but see how it really fits together. The battle, the war that rages inside of us, these two parts of us that are in tension. We looked at the verse, some of the verses last week, but I'm just going to bring up a few by way of review so we can all get caught up on the same page. Let's look at a few of them. Romans chapter 7 Starting in verse 18, this is the Apostle Paul describing himself. The Apostle Paul, a good, good man. But here's what he says, Romans 7, 18. For I know that is that in me, that is in my flesh, that's an important word, dwelleth no good thing. No good thing. 
For to will is present with me, that is, to desire to do the right thing is present with me. And that's because of the Spirit, we'll find out. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. In verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not or I don't want to do, I do. Verse 20, now if I do that, that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me, that flesh again. He's what he's talking about. What Paul is describing, when you read those verses, it sounds like an incongruous compound. <laughs> it sounds like a mess. It sounds like a battle. It's a war. I want to do this. I have this wonder inside, but there's also something else pulling me the other direction. But as we saw last week, our theme verse for this entire series, this, these two messages, last week and this week, gives us the answer to this war. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, and I want to start out with that so that we know we have the victory here, and we can have the victory. Galatians 5, verse 16, this I say then, this is the Apostle Paul also writing, this I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, we're going to get into more of that in a minute, but let's look deeper into this war that's inside. In the next verse, Paul clarifies the battle, Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would or that you, that you want. We all have had those times where we've said, I, I wanted to do the right thing. I did. I, I wanted to do it, but I just, it was so hard, and I just couldn't do it. And I've, we've all been there. But there's this amazing thing in the believer, and I, wanna, I want us to get here really in the, the center of this idea. The Holy Spirit, when you ask Jesus to come into your life, and you say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross and you rose again, there's a miracle that takes place inside of someone. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of your spirit. Your spirit comes alive. And now you have a, a brand new wanter in there. You have a new desire. You have this thing inside of you that's driving you to do the right thing and to follow the Lord. And you, you feel good when you come to church. You feel good when you do the right thing. It's just, that's the Holy Spirit inside saying, good job, good job. But then there's a feeling that he also does when we do the wrong thing. And he's saying, why did you do that? Don't do that. Come on, get back. Let's go. And he's always working, always working, always working to pull us in the direction of the Lord. But then there's still this other part of us, the flesh, the Mr. Hyde, that is doing the same thing but in a different direction. He's always pulling us. It's me. It's my natural tendency to fulfill my desires in any way I see fit. And it's always pulling me to do the wrong thing. And so there's this spirit and flesh war that rages inside of everyone. But he promises, the Holy Spirit promises in Galatians chapter 5, if, if we were to read further, he, say, he promises this amazing life. If you walk in the Spirit, there's this fruit that will pop out of your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, the things that everybody wants. But there's that other part of me, the flesh, that's always pulling me back. And each day this war is being fought inside of all of us that are in Christ. To one degree or another, this battle is inside of us. Now, before we go on, let me give us one word of hope. The war will end. 
the war ends when we get to heaven and the flesh is gone. Praise the Lord. No more of that inner battle. No more of that inner struggle. No more of that times when I said I wanted to do the right thing. I, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to see that. I, I didn't want to say that. I, I didn't want to, but I felt pulled and I just did it. I don't know. We all know those feelings. But no more of that when we get to heaven. But until then, I also want to give us hope. We can win our daily fights. Don't, don't live in a, in a way that says, I can't win. It's just too hard. No, 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 no. God doesn't want anybody living there. We can win the war inside even today and have that fruitful life that he talks about. Now, I want to get a clearer view of what this war looks like in action. So I want to do a case study this morning. Since I made, and here's what we're going to do, since I made my confession last week, I started off with my confession on the, on the phone. I told you how much of a jerk I am, okay, and how much of a bad guy I can be. I let it all out there for you. So today, what I thought we would do is we would start on this side of the room and everybody stand up and say what the worst thing that they did this week, and we're just going to go around the room, and you just, does that sound, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Some of you were very scared there, weren't you? <sighs> But imagine, imagine if we were to do something like that. Imagine if we were to stand up and imagine having your most shameful sin. See, I didn't even tell you my most shameful sin. And I'm not going to, so don't even get that idea. But imagine if you had to stand up in front of everybody and tell your most shameful sin. I, I, I can't imagine that, but now imagine if it even goes further, then once you say it, imagine people start writing blogs about it, and it's not just contained in one room, no, it starts to go out, and then people are going to make movies about your life. Imagine if they made movies about your sin. Imagine then that the preachers and pulpits all over the world talk about you and your sin all the time. I'm thankful <laughs> that no one sees my most shameful sin, but did you know God allowed this to happen to one of the greatest people that ever lived, one of the, his most greatest servants, one of his greatest servants, a man who has written songs that we sing in this very church, a man who had greater faith than many of us will ever hope to have, a man who is after God's own heart, a spirit-led man who battled the flesh Every day, like you and me, a man who whooped a giant, but his own flesh took him down. His name is David, and I love David. A, the shepherd boy turned to a king, killed Goliath, David. We're going to take a quick look at David's famous story with Bathsheba this morning. Everyone thinks of two stories when they think of David. David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba. Matter of fact, just for fun, I typed in in Google, David and, and I was, I was waiting to see what happened. David and Goliath was number one. David and Bathsheba was number two. And those are the stories we first think of when we think of David. That's sad. His greatest moment and his worst moment, if you will. But in this sad account that we're going to look at today, we're going to see how the spirit and flesh were battling inside of him and he lost the fight in this one in small and practical ways. And that's going to lead us to talk about some practical things in our own lives. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, 
that David sent Joab. He sent Joab. So the time comes when kings should be going forth to battle, that David sent Joab. That's his general of the army and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still in Jerusalem. Now, real quick, historical perspective here. In the previous chapter, we see David in battle with those neighboring armies, Ammon and others. And um, he wins an easy battle. He really just wipes them out with God's help in the previous chapter. But then, right after that, the winter comes. And so nobody wants to go out and fight, and fight hand-to-hand combat in the winter. It's all sloshy and nasty on the ground, so they're just going to wait. They wait a year and get back to battling. They were all gentlemen warriors. But, uh, but the enemy wasn't done. They were going to meet again. So a year later, it says that they go into battle again. But this time, David, probably thinking, you know, it was so easy last time. Easy fight, easy win. I'm just going to send Joab, my general. I'm going to let them handle this one. So go ahead. You guys go take this battle. You can handle the fight. I'll stay home. Now, the Bible makes a special note that it was, a, it was the appropriate time for kings to go to battle. He should have been out there fighting the battle, but he wanted to probably just relax. Let me, I, I just want to relax. I just, I just want to chill. I deserve to relax. So David stayed at home, and they all went to fight, and his past victories, think about it now, his past victories had given him the sense that he didn't need to do anything. Ah, we're, we're going to win, so I'm not really going to, I don't need to fight. By the way, this is a dangerous place to be in your own mind, thinking that yesterday's victories will help you with today's battles. Nope, doesn't work like that, doesn't work like that. And now we see that his relaxation leads to idleness, and you know what idleness leads to. Verse 2, and it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose off his bed. He was so relaxed, he couldn't even sleep. He hadn't been working too hard. He just was trying to go to sleep. He couldn't, couldn't sleep, and so he gets up. He rose from off his bed, walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the w- roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Whoo, David, David, you're at a crossroads here. You are at an important moment. You're so idle that you can't sleep. Now you're walking around where you shouldn't be probably walking around. And David's flesh is raging right now. He sees this woman bathing. What will he do? And David, verse 3, sent and inquired. I- I'm just inquiring. I'm just inquiring. That's all. David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Okay, David, that's good right there. You have the information you need. This is the wife of Uriah. Give it up. You've already committed adultery in your mind, Jesus would say, but, but don't go any further, David. That's enough. Let's get this run right and let's just go back to what we should be doing. You know, we are so reasonable. We're such good, reasonable people in the, uh, when we're not in the moment, in this kind of a moment. You know what I'm saying? Why does lust and sin of any kind, when we're getting pulled that way, why does it make us so stupid in the moment? David was absolutely stupid 
Answer to that question is the flesh. His flesh was pulling him. Verse four, and David sent messengers and took her. She came in unto him and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Whoo, David, the lowest moment and about to get even lower. Now, you're probably familiar with what happens next. We don't have time to go into all the details, but let me just explain what, what happens. This moment, from this moment on, he's, he finds out that this wife of this other man is now pregnant, and he now has to do a desperate cover-up. And he goes crazy trying to cover up his act. This scheme that he puts into play will eventually lead David to ordering the murder of her husband. And now Uriah, her husband, is going to go out and he dies. And this is all because of David. And David lives with the guilt of all this. Each day, he begins to live with the guilt for some time until finally the prophet came to him. God's man comes and vividly shows David what he has done. And he shows David, David, God saw everything. He saw you up there. He knew what was happening. He was there. He saw it all. And God has some consequences for you, David. And David wept. David confessed. David repented. But God still had some consequences. And those consequences came swift and they came very hard against David and against his entire household. But God still had great mercy on David as well. And he did not just wipe him out. How could David go this far? This is a question. How could David, the man of God, the man who writes, who wrote so many of the Psalms, the, a good, good man, a man of faith who whooped a giant, how could he go this far? Have you ever asked that? of your own life, how could, I go, how could I have gone this far? How did I get here? How did I get to this point? Because he let the flesh rule him. The king let the flesh be king. It was a series of little fleshly choices. David made the little fleshly choice to not go to war. In and of itself, it's not evil, but it, it was leading to temptation. It was a fleshly choice. I just want to relax. I've had victory. I don't need to go out there, even though it was the right time to go out. David made the fleshly choice then to be idle. David made the fleshly choice to wander around where he could see things. He made the fleshly choice not to leave the roof, but to stay in lust. He made the fleshly choice to go after his sinful desires, and then things only got worse and worse. So here's the question. Where did David go wrong? How could he have won this fight? How could he have won this war that was raging inside of him? What, what could he have done? Galatians 5.16 gives us the answer. It's a short and effective answer. It's the way to win in any flesh versus spirit war. It's our theme verse. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's how it's done. This is how we win. This is how we are victorious. You walk in the spirit, and then you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can't do both. David was not doing both. It was not, 
He was not doing splesh, okay, or flirit. No, it was spirit and flesh. He was, he was either one or the other, and he was not walking in the spirit. If David had been walking in the spirit, he would not have done any of this. Remember, in essence, listen, what walking in the spirit really is. Walking in the spirit means to give the Holy Spirit control, complete control of your life, and then keep in line with him. That's what it says in Galatians 5 there. To walk in the Spirit, really, it means to conform my life to His and to then keep in line with Him. The the Holy Spirit didn't have control of David that day. In that moment, the Holy Spirit did not have control of, of David. If He did, then the Holy Spirit would have led him in a completely different direction from the very beginning. You see, the Holy Spirit has the weapons. The Holy Spirit has the weapons to win. He had the weapons available for David to win that fight. He has the weapons for you and me to win the fight. You know, one of the most satisfying things in the world, in my opinion, is when you find the right tool for the job. And you know, when you're doing something and then you come across, this is the tool. And this makes everything work. It's one of the most satisfying things in the world. And maybe you've heard this. I'm sorry if you have. But have you heard my cheater bar story? It's, it's in my Leading from the Couch book, and I lead off with that. It's an important moment I remember in my life. It was a, it was a poignant moment. I think I was about 16 years old, and I'm working on my, my car, my truck, my little pickup that I had, and I'm trying to get the wheels to come off of my little pickup. This is an old pickup, okay? This is not a nice new pickup. And I'm doing what I can. I'm out there working in the backyard, and I'm cranking, and I, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm not a huge man, okay? <clears throat> Back then, I was even skinnier, and so I'm, I have this, my little wrench, and this little skinny body is trying to push as hard as it can to get these lug nuts to break loose, and uh, I'm working out there for I don't know how long, and I want to give up so many times, and I pretty much did, and then my dad just casually walks out, what you doing? Trying to get these lug nuts off. I just can't get them off. He said, have you tried a cheater bar? Huh? I've never heard of it before. First of all, it sounds like something you're not supposed to use, a cheater. That's a, I don't know, this, sounds, this sounds wrong. He says, a cheater bar. What's a cheater bar, Dad? Oh, well, if you get a long pipe. Here, let me show you. Get a long pipe, put that over the end of your handle there, and then just crank. And then you just pull out here. You get a lot more leverage. And it was easy. Broke that lug nut right off. Now, wait a second. This whole time I've been struggling, and I had the tool right there. I just didn't know it. You know, what I'm about to give us, what I'm about to talk about this morning, is the cheater bar for beating sin. And I say that with confidence this morning. Do you know why? Because it's found in God's Word. And everything I'm about to show you, the things that the Holy Spirit will lead us to, the tools that He will give us, to be victorious over sin in our life will work. They will work if we use them. And if we're walking in the Spirit, He will always lead it. The Spirit, if we're walking with Him, in line with Him, we've given up, first of all, over complete control to Him, then He will lead us in this way. Because this is the way the Holy Spirit always leads us to the Word of God, which has the answers for our lives. So here is, this morning, how to beat the flesh. 
in the power of the Spirit. Well, where will the Holy Spirit lead us? If we're walking with the Spirit, that just means to give over control and stay in line with Him, and we're walking with Him, where is He going to lead us? Well, I'm going to show us some things in Scripture that He will lead us to do. And this is going to be very practical. These are the things we can do if we're going to defeat sin. It's the cheater bar for defeating the flesh. And God will be here the whole time. I want to remind us of this. The Holy Spirit will be with us the entire time. As we do this and surrender to him with his big hand over our little hand, helping and guiding us through this and giving us the power to do every step that he's asked us to do. Are you ready? Here it is. Number one, starve the flesh. You starve the flesh. The Holy Spirit, if we're walking in the Spirit, he's going to lead us to starve the flesh. Romans 13, this is very practical, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Now this is saying to do what Jesus says to do. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, be what Jesus would be. Be in line with Jesus. And so, first of all, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and then don't provide, don't make no provision for the flesh. Basically, don't provide anything that would make it easy for the flesh to fulfill its cravings. In other words, like at the zoo, you go to the zoo, you see the animals in the zoo behind the cage, and there's a sign on there that says, do not feed the animals. That's what we're saying. Put your flesh in a cage and then slap a sign over that that says, do not feed the animal. Do not feed the beast. Do not enable this part of you, this flesh that has no good thing in it, do not enable it. Do not give it anything. Do not feed this rebellious, wicked, unruly animal. Have you heard of those people that have a predatory animal as a pet? It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. You hear about them at least a couple times a year. This person had a boa constrictor as a pet, and they loved that boa constrictor and slept with it one night, and that boa constrictor constricted it to death. Or that there is a literal a person who had a bear with them, and she loved her bear. And all her neighbors said she was so nice. She was a great lady. She just had a, just an interesting pet. No, she didn't have an interesting pet. She had a beast for a pet. She had, a, she had an animal, a predatory animal that was going to kill her, and, they, and, and that's what they do. But people coddle these wild animals. You don't coddle a dangerous animal. When it comes to sin, the thing that makes it stronger in my life or in, all of, in all, all of our lives, is the little meals that we feed it over time. It just builds it up and builds it up and builds it up. The more you do, the more you feed it, and the more it's just going to want more. If you struggle, in other words, if you struggle with alcohol, don't go to a bar, don't go to a club. Probably shouldn't go there anyway, whether you struggle or not. If you struggle with pornography, like we talked about last week, this is on the list of sins that list of fleshly sins that Paul puts in, Gal- in uh, Galatians chapter 5, the works of the flesh, porneia, porneia. If you struggle with pornography, do not be on a screen without accountability. This is just helping you not feed the flesh. Every time we look at those things, every time we go after those things, every time we take those things, we're feeding it. If you struggle with materialism, don't look at all the ads. Don't look at all the ads. Don't feed yourself 
Oh, I want that. 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 So why is it so difficult to give up our fleshly desires? Honestly, because we, ha- we haven't hated it enough. We haven't gotten to the place where we're ready to starve it to death. We still have affection for sin in some way. We say we're going to stop doing it, but we keep going back. And we say one more time, and then I'll never do this again. But that's the fatal flaw right there. You don't get rid of a beast by feeding it. You don't, get, you don't say, here, if I feed you, you'll be happy. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. The only way to defeat sin is to starve it. And if, you, if we're walking in the Spirit, the Spirit is going to lead us to starve and to choke out the flesh. Here's why feeding it a little bit will never work. Because the flesh is never satisfied. The lusts, the cr- or the cravings, if you will, of the flesh are never satisfied, ever. Your flesh never says, okay, that's enough. I've had enough. That's good. I'm full now. I'll never bother you ever again. It was great. Thank you. You don't have to do any of that anymore. No, 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 no. You just build him stronger and stronger every single time we feed him. It always wants one more look. It always wants one more thing. It always wants one more time, one more, just one more, just one more, one more, one more. It enjoys the power of anger. It enjoys the pleasure of pornography. It enjoys the pride of materialism. But sin is a liar. It never, never satisfies in the end. And we know that. Just ask King David. David, was it worth it? Those few moments that you had with Bathsheba, was it worth it? You better believe it wasn't worth it. It was a flesh, a lust of the flesh that he gave into, and it, it killed him. It ruined so much of his life. This is why, in Romans chapter 8, and we're not going to go there, but I want to remind you of something Paul said. Paul said, you are not a debtor to the flesh. You're not in debt to the flesh. You're, in other words, you're not obligated in any means to the flesh. It has done nothing for you. It has done nothing for you. What does that mean? Imagine a conversation with your flesh real quick. Mr. Flesh, what have you done for me? Um, I gave you a lot of pleasure. Really. But it was horrible afterwards. It, It led to guilt. It led to sadness. It led to a horrible feeling about myself. It led to countless hours of pain that I caused to me and others. It led to broken relationships. No, I owe you nothing, Mr. Flesh, but, but you owe me. You owe me for the good time that I gave you. Listen, 10 minutes of a, a good feeling is not worth all the countless hours of pain. You know, last week, again, I talked about my anger that I had on the phone, and I explained that whole story, and I told you how I felt. I tried to describe the feelings. It was good at the moment, I got to tell you when I was talking to that person at DMV to let off all my steam. It felt good at that moment. But man, as soon as I hung up the phone, I gotta tell you, I was absolutely struck in my heart. I was was struck. I really was in my heart. Son, you just, you just ruined the name, the good name of the home church as a pastor of the home church and then you're acting like that. You just ruined the name of Jesus with your actions. And my heart just felt horrible. I felt horrible about myself. 
And following the flesh, the point is that following the flesh in any way, gave, it gave me nothing except a guilty feeling. I don't know who was the first to say it, but it's still true. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have I been too harsh on sin? Have I been too harsh on sin? Good. Let me tell you one more verse on this. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts, cravings, desires. Did you know, do you know what is involved in a crucifixion? I know you've heard it, you've probably seen the movies, Jesus being crucified. Do you know how gruesome a crucifixion is? It's disgusting. And what this verse is saying is, is that in your heart and in your mind, do that to your flesh, to the cravings of your flesh. You as a believer have been crucified in the sense that your body, the flesh, has been crucified. You have uh, something that God has done. He has taken away, which means the power of that has been killed. That's a truth in you. And you, also the penalty of sin has been removed, and so now you are going to go to heaven. Hell is off the table like we talked about last week. You're saved. You're saved. You're saved. And I want you to know that you have the victory. You, that's it. you have it. You already have it. You're saved. But now, but now, that flesh, that craving needs to every day, you need to take some nails and you need to put it down on the cross and you need to nail that thing to the cross. And it's going to be bloody and ugly. I said starve the flesh. That's one verse. This one just takes it to a whole new level. Crucify it. Murder it. Choke it. Burn it. Chop it. Shoot it. Suffocate it. I don't care what you call it. You have to get mean with the flesh. Hammer the nails into the flesh every day. In other words, don't ever make it easy for your flesh to get what it wants. If the, if the Spirit is leading my life, that's where He's going to lead me. That's where He's going to lead me. So, after we've starved our flesh, the Spirit will lead us to this next thing. Number two, yield your parts. Yield your parts. Yield your parts. This is so important. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, because you are alive from the dead, and your members then as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, what are these members? This may sound strange, but these members are our faculties. In other words, our body parts the parts of us, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our mouth, our ears. This is an incredibly practical verse, and it's, it's, it's a practical way to see my surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Personally, it's, it's for me, this verse is, is, uh, is one of my most favorite in all of the Bible, because I, I need something, I want something that, Lord, what do I do about this? If there's something in my life, then what do I do? And, and this is one thing that God has given us to do. Here's what you do. 
If you don't want sin to reign in your mortal body, then here's what you need to do. You need to yield your members. You need to surrender them. You need to give them the control of each one of your members to the Lord. And so this has become one of the most used verses in my life out of all the Bible. And often in the morning I will wake up and I know there's going to be a battle. And we know that. We know there's going to be a fight. And so what I will do is I will say, God, I, this morning I want to give you my hands. I want to surrender my hands again today. And this is not just something you do one and that's it. No, this is something that God's telling us to keep doing. I want to surrender my hands. I, I want to surrender my feet to whatever you would want my feet to do. And I want my eyes to do what you would want them to do. My mind to do what you would want it, or to think what you would want it to think. And the ears to take in what, you're, what you would want it to take in. And one by one, you just line up your members, your parts, and you begin surrendering them to the Lord. Hands report for duty, feet report for duty, eyes report for duty. Does that, does that mean that um, we're going to be perfect after we do that? No. But there's something amazing that happens when you begin a day like that. Begin by yielding these little things. And, and specifically, this is my surrender, Lord. I'm putting this here for you. Would you use this? But I want you to notice two things about this yielding. Number one is that I have the autonomy and the freedom to choose who my members will obey for the day. God has given that to me. You, son, have, I've given you the victory. I'm taking you to heaven. The penalty and the power of sin is broken in your life. The presence of sin is still in your life. And I'm going to give you the decision whether your hands and your feet and your eyes are going to be mine today or they're going to be yours today. You have the, decision. You have the autonomy in this way, and I'm, I'm giving you that. You can choose. Yield your members as instruments of righteousness or instruments of unrighteousness. And that's the other point I wanted you to notice. There's only two choices, righteousness or unrighteousness. So God says if you want to defeat the flesh then willingly submit your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mouth, etc., to become the righteous instruments of God. Now, the opposite of that is what we saw in David. David's body parts in that day, in that moment, were, were not surrendered to the Lord. He never had the thought, because later on, it's amazing what will happen throughout the day. If you surrender your parts to the Lord, something will happen, and, things will, and you, you, you'll sense the battle starting to come. And you'll think in your mind, okay, I've given my eyes to the Lord. I've given my mind to the Lord. I've given my hands to the Lord. This is not what God's hands would want to do. This is not what God's hands, his instrument would want to participate in. But David didn't do that. Well, he didn't ask that. He didn't stop and think, these are the instruments of God. I can't do this. One of the most sad thoughts when I think about this verse, when I think about this, is the wasted potential of people. See, right here what he's saying is, if you'll surrender, if you'll yield your members, here's the amazing thing about your members. You just think they're hands. You just think they're eyes. You just think it's a mind. You just, you just think it's feet. No, God sees much more than that. He sees an instrument. He sees something that he can use, something that he can tell the world about himself, something that he can declare to everybody who he is. That's what God sees when he looks at our body parts. And I'm, I'm thinking, um, well, that's just, just hands. No, 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 no. 
Those are more than hands. Those are instruments of righteousness that I can use. But if you don't yield them, I can't use them that way. And that's the most sad thing about this. Because we'll go day after day after day and we'll never yield ourselves to the Lord. And we've then yielded ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't waste the members that God has given you. I'm gonna give you the third thing. Next, the Holy Spirit will always lead us to this thing, and that will be number three, wash in the word, to wash in the word. Wash in the word. And we're gonna go through these a little more quickly. Why do we fight? Listen, why do we fight taking a Bible bath every day? Some of us, you know, some of us are still like five-year-old boys who need someone to tell us to take a bath. We've had a lot of those in our house. You know, these guys, they roll around in the dirt. I was one of them. Roll around in the dirt, and then, I'm, I'm fine. I, I don't need to get in the bath. you got to force them. And we're so often rolling around in the dirt of this world, and we look down, and we wonder how we got so dirty. How did I get so dirty? Oh, I've gone several days without a bath. God says, spend some time reading the Bible, and, and uh, you're going to see that this has a cleansing effect. Spend time reading the Bible, and we have all the excuses, you know, I, I can't do that. We fight taking a bath with God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. The it here is the church, meaning you and me, the people, the people in the church. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. There is a washing effect that takes place when we dive into the word. The Holy Spirit is going to lead us to read the word of God so we can take a good bath. Look at this verse, Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. You know who wrote that? Probably David. Most likely it was David. He wrote, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. David didn't do that perfectly. I don't think it was, I don't think, I doubt he was hiding God's word in his heart that day that he took Bathsheba. The word of God has a cleansing effect when we really, really read it. And here's the problem this morning. It's that we're, when we still read the Bible and we're not really letting it wash us, here's the reason. We're reading it wrong. And I, I want to put, put this out there for you. The, the, the wrong way to read the Bible is this. We don't approach, so often, the, we don't approach the Bible with a readiness to do it. We're not approaching reading God's Word with, with a readiness to do whatever it says. My uncle told me about a tribe that he visited in another country, and this tribe, he went there to minister, and they, he was trying to help them, and he said, they helped me way more than I helped them. He said, because when I was there, I heard about these new believers, and they had just gotten a, a Bible, and they began to read this, and they had gotten saved. The, the Spirit of God had changed their life, and they're, they're reading the Bible, and whatever the Bible says, they're ready to go do. And it says to go reach, you know, go to all the tribes and languages, and they, okay, and they start packing up their stuff immediately. I, I'm sorry, I'm going to go to the next tribe and tell them about Jesus, because this is what the Bible, the book says. I got to go to the next tribe. Bible says, go, I go. A walk in the Spirit means to align myself with God's will. So that should be my approach when I'm reading the Word. Lord, what does it say? God, I'm ready to do what you say. Now, talk to me. 
Not, I'll see what the Bible says first, and then I'll decide whether I want to do it or not. That's not how this works. You're not walking in the Spirit if we approach it that way. When we come in the right way to the Lord, Lord, I want to do this, what does it say? Then we get a bath. We get a bath. And we then are led away from sin and away from the flesh. We're not just reading any old book. It's not just a textbook that we read in the morning. It's about connecting with the God who loves us. It's not about getting information so you can be smart or, or anything like that or win a debate. It's so that you can, so the word can dwell in you richly, it says in Colossians chapter 3, so you can spill out on others. It's about putting it deep into your heart. Every Christian I've ever looked up to or ever admired in my life has talked about the discipline of reading God's word as a central theme of their life, every single one. There must be something to that. And I would just encourage you, start today. Start tomorrow morning. Verse number, number four, be in the work. The Holy Spirit will lead us to be in the work. The best way to be empty of sin this morning is to be filled with good. Be filled with good. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, the Bible says. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says, flee also youthful lust, but follow. You don't just flee. You got to follow. Follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 2 Peter chapter 1 says, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, keep adding things to your life, the things of God, whatever the next thing is, keep adding, 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 adding. Keep doing the right thing. Don't just run away from sin. No, run to the good. Run to what God would have. And lastly, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding, or the word could be said overflowing in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What are these verses, all these verses really telling us? And that is that fruitful lives, listen, fruitful lives are busy lives. They're busy lives. Not just busy to be busy though. They're busy doing good things for the Lord. God wants us to be busy abounding or overflowing in the work of the Lord. If David would have been busy doing the right thing, if he would have been busy doing good, there would have been no time to mess up his life with Bathsheba. Sometimes we think we can relax and rely on yesterday's victory like David did, but no, there's another good thing to do today. There's another good thing to do today. A lazy Christian life leads to a lousy Christian life. But let me say this, if you're a Christian, there will be an automatic, this is the Holy Spirit inside of you, there will be an automatic desire to help others. So it's an automatic desire not just to do good things or just be nice to people, but it's, but it's to do something much deeper. See, the Holy Spirit plants something inside of us as believers <clears throat> to desire to help someone increase in their knowledge and love of Jesus to help others come to Jesus. It's good to do good, but you're not gonna just be fulfilled in that. No, see, as believers, there's something much deeper. It's nice to give someone a meal who needs a meal, but there's something much deeper that, that really, really uh, goes where the Spirit wants, us to t- wants to take us, and it really will help us be fulfilled, and that is to help somebody fall in love with Jesus. 
Help somebody come to know Jesus. Help lead someone to faith in Christ. See, this is part of walking in the Spirit. And one of the greatest moments you'll ever have in your life is to help someone accept Jesus as their Savior. And you know, so here's my question to us this morning. Who are you helping right now come to Christ? It may be in the beginning stages. It may be somebody at work. It may just be somebody you're talking to. But your goal is not just, hey man, uh, have a good day. No, or, you know, enjoy your day and I'm going to be friendly. No, it's more than that. See, God puts it in us to help people come to Jesus. And so, we have to always be aware of this. The work that God wants us to do, and it keeps us from going the way of the flesh. In many ways, and I don't have time to unpack this, but imagine at work, for example. I'm at work, and I'm, if I've told everybody, if I've made it very clear that I'm a Christian, and I, I want to help people find Jesus, man, that all of a sudden puts this huge accountability in my life that I better not screw this up. I better not act like an idiot, because then they'll think Christians are idiots. And I don't want them to think that, and I don't want them to think Jesus is an idiot. So I'm not going to do that. There's an automatic thing to help keep us away from the the lust of the flesh, and that is to make my life about someone, make my life about helping someone come to Jesus. If my life is like that, and I'm thinking about that, and I'm pursuing that, I'm helping somebody, oh man, it does a work inside of me that you won't believe, and you'll never, ever, ever feel more like, like you're in the will of God than when you help somebody come to Jesus Christ. You'll never Never feel more like you're in the will of God. But don't rely on the church to give you an audience. No, go out there and do, get your own audience. Go out there and live and work among people and wherever we are. Heaven is rest time. This is work time. Lastly, this morning, let me just ask you a question. What if we mess all this up? What if we mess up in all of this? Ha, ha, ha. If. You're going to mess it up. We're going to mess up, but the last thing this morning is to confess your sins. Walking in the Spirit is not living perfectly. Walking in the Spirit is often getting back up. It's confessing your sins. It's making it right when you do fall. Here's where we get back on track every day. Following my flesh will bring a rift in my fellowship with God. Every time, sin always does that. Sin leads to death, the Bible says. It leads to death of relationships. It leads to uh, death of dreams. It leads to death of boldness. And every time I sin, I'm making a rift in the fellowship that I have with God. It's not my sonship in the sense that I'm, I'm still his child, but it's a fellowship issue. And I won't sense that closeness with the Lord I'm still his son, I'm still on my way to heaven, but man, oh man, do I feel a, 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 a distance from the Lord. And I, I have a guilty conscience, that, that's what that is, and God has provided a way of getting that conscience clear and living an honest life before God and people. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He cleanses us and brings us back into sweet fellowship with him. Confess means to agree with God, and that's what made David so great. Let me just put that out there this morning. 
The reason David was so great is because he would always eventually agree with God. He would always come back. He would always get things taken care of. He would always clear the slate with God. And David's strength was his genuine heart of confession and repentance. David was the living example of 1 John 1.9. In fact, the greatest confessions in the entire Bible are in Psalm chapter 39 and 51 where David lays and fillets his heart out there before the Lord and confesses his sin with Bathsheba. God heard David's cry for forgiveness and he forgave him and cleansed him from unrighteousness. God did send consequences and he will send consequences to our life, but he also sends great mercy to bring us back into fellowship. God brought David back into fellowship. Thankfully, I want to say one thing about David. We don't see another Bathsheba story after that. His repentance was genuine. He came before the Lord. But even if we sin, there is a river of forgiveness that never runs dry. Jesus will forgive our sins. He'll cleanse from our unrighteousness. If we come back with a genuine heart, he will clear the slate. Sometimes we feel too dirty to sit with Jesus. I've done this thing. I, I feel too dirty. I've, I, talk, I feel so guilty. I don't even know if Jesus wants to talk to me. But I'll, I'll, when I, this happens, I often picture in my mind what it would be like to have Jesus come over to my house and do what he did for Peter. And all the other disciples, when he took the towel and he wiped and washed their feet, he came to Peter and he said, Peter, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter said, no, 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 no. You don't wash my feet. I should wash yours, you know, this is, this is not right. He said, no, Peter, I need to do this. Okay, well then, fine then, just wash my whole body because I just need to be purified everywhere. I'm a dirty man. And, and, and Jesus said, no, 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 Peter. You're not getting this right. You are cleansed. You're clean. You have the forgiveness of your sins. You're a clean person in your heart. But man, have you got dirt on your life, <laughs> on your feet, in your daily life. You've got all kinds of sin on there, and I need to take care of that. I need to bring you back into fellowship. And this is a picture of that. And so Peter, let him do that. Can you imagine? It brings tears to my eyes when I think about this, but being in my chair, I'll sometimes think, Lord Jesus, I want you to wash the sin off of me. And I imagine Jesus just kneeling down there and washing my feet, and, a sh- and a, just, a, just a wave of, of uh, emotions come over me because I think Jesus shouldn't be having to do this. Stop, stop walking in the flesh. Stop making it so that Jesus would have to kneel down and do this. I don't want to sin. I don't want to do this, Jesus. I'm sorry. And Jesus says, I know, but let me do this so that you can be restored back into fellowship with me and I'll keep doing this for you. This is the way we live in victory, everybody. Lastly, this morning, let me just say this. On his 90th birthday, they asked George Mueller, the, one, the amazing, famous pastor and writer and helper of orphans and the man of incredible faith. They asked him, they said, what is the secret to you being happy and peaceful all the time? And he said, first, I've tried to keep a clear conscience. I've kept a clear conscience and it makes me joyful. And second, I love the Word of God. I love the Word of God. What a great description, really, of walking in the Spirit. It really comes down to some of those things and getting that fruit, that love, joy, peace. That's really what everybody wants. But let me make something very clear this morning. God wants every Christian in here to live in victory like that. 
He didn't create any people to be the, oh, you're that kind of Christian? Nope, you're the Christian that doesn't get victory. Nope, that's not you. You can't have that. There's no, no Christian like that. He wants every Christian living in victory and living with the fruit of the Spirit in their life. There's nothing stopping you. A Christian should never live in defeat. All we need to do is walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. And these are some of the things he'll lead us to.